everybody and welcome to episode 38 of Life and Life Only. This episode and definitely the next one and who knows even the next one after that are about happiness because I've taken on another big book challenge. As regular listeners will know I often read a book particularly it seems in the self-development genre or books about life you know with a little bit of philosophy and uh, psychology to them. And I try and pick out the best bits and I read them out to you and I interject with my own ideas and observations. And in fact, we have tackled the topic of happiness before. We did uh, think that was a three-parter on the art of happiness, which was the um, book that involved the Dalai Lama. This book, which was written by Darren Brown, is pretty different to that book. Obviously, they've got the same broad topic. But uh, as far as I can remember from when I read the Dalai Lama book, there's not too much overlap, so I think we're on safe ground that we're not repeating ourselves too much. This book is a, a bit of a monster. The full title is Happy, subtitle Why More or Less Everything is Absolutely Fine. And I'll make a comment about that subtitle in a second. But uh, the reason I'm doing this really is because back in, I think it was April and then May, I did a two-parter which was a Life and Life Only profile on uh, Luke's English podcast. Luke Thompson and I have become uh, very good podcast friends, let's say. We're both Alan Partridge obsessives, which is a great bond for us. We've collaborated a number of times, and I think he asked me about happiness. The episode hasn't gone out because he's stockpiling because uh, his wife is expecting their second child. So congratulations again to Luke for that. So he's stockpiling episodes. So I think they won't see the light of day until maybe, I think he said August. But uh, during that, he said, you know, what's the key to being happy then? And I tried to come up with something. Uh, I was just coming off a pretty bad illness, which, uh, again, I'm going to talk about in a second. And he mentioned this uh, book that Darren Brown had written about happiness. And I did remember that Darren had done a few interviews. Darren is a quite strong believer in the Stoic philosophy, which is in this book that we're going to look at in these episodes. So I I ordered it. I didn't realise it was 500 pages, 520 pages It's both a simple and complex topic. It's simple in the sense that we have a general idea of what it is to be happy and what it is to be sad. And you could say, well, I'm feeling happy today. I'm feeling sad today. But then we use other words. So if you think of um, a person who's very cheerful, what that means is that they give a general demeanour of being upbeat. You know, maybe they make a lot of jokes. They seem to be in a good mood all the time. And then on the other end of the scale, we we use the word depressed far too much. I mean, depression, as in chronic depression, is a very, very serious illness. Life-changing or life-destroying, really. But we tend to use the word very flippantly. So happiness seems to be something that's known. You know, like the word love as well, you know, if you think about that. But it's actually very, very complex. And Darren Brown's done a fantastic job here of creating a book that looks at this topic from a lot of different angles. Now, just before I um, get cracking on reading some of the bits of this book, I just want to mention a few other things. If you're a listener to my John Lennon podcast, which is Glass Onion on John Lennon, I mentioned in the last episode that I'd had COVID, or uh, I had an illness that seems to be COVID, and I tested positive at least. As Luke said, you know, what, what are you doing getting COVID in 2023? You know, you're three years after the party uh, started, if you know what I mean. Just a little bit of dark humour there. I did feel a bit like someone who has suddenly discovered a piece of technology that's been around for years and has already had its sell-by date almost in terms of 
the thing that everyone's talking about. Because that's what COVID was, as well as being a virus. There's obviously been endless speculation about whether it was as serious as we were told and how many deaths did it cause. I'm not really here to talk about that today. It was also a thing that bonded people in terms of being something to talk about. Anyway, all I really wanted to say was that it probably was the worst I'd ever felt for about five days. There was one day, in fact, I I couldn't move. I almost literally couldn't move from my bed to go to the bathroom and and get a drink of water. And there was a point where I was wondering, am I ever going to get out of this? Is this just going to go on forever? I mean, we do hear about long COVID, of course. But, um, you know, after about a week, I got out of my house and had this weird spaced out feeling. It was very much like actually this illness when I used to get tonsillitis quite regularly because I was quite a heavy smoker from the age of about 15 to about 25. I used to smoke Marlboro Reds, which are pretty strong. And because John Lennon at that time dictated if you like from beyond the grave almost everything I did I just copied everything he did I used to smoke gitan uh, French cigarettes so really I, I thought I had tonsillitis but then it came with all this other stuff aching bones and muscles and just this really really spaced out feeling and this incredible lack of energy but really what I wanted to say was that every time I've had an illness I've always come out the other side of it feeling quite a lot better than I did before I had the illness And it was very much a wake-up call because I was just working and being occupied with things all the time, really doing all the things that I would probably tell a person not to do. I freely admit that. So while I was ill, I was thinking, you'll come out of this feeling very cleansed because I didn't really eat for a week. All I was eating was yoghurt and and fruit. And I was drinking a lot of water, so I, I was trying to look on the bright side of it. And I did feel cleansed. And the other thing was... I was probably sleeping about five hours and I'd just wake up coughing and stuff. But I had these incredible middle-of-the-night experiences, these sort of 4 or 5 a.m. experiences, because that's the time of the morning that I really like, but the problem is I always associate it with being tired. So if I go to sleep at the time that I normally would, say half 11, 12, if you wake up at 4 or 5, it generally means you haven't slept enough and you're going to have a rough day. But because I you know, I knew I wasn't going to be working because I wasn't in any condition to work, I actually allowed myself these sort of strange twilight hours and I was having these strange thoughts and uh, I was meditating a little bit and meditation always seems to bring me back to my childhood. So as I say, it's quite a magical time, to be honest. My senses felt sharp and I, and I found myself doing quite a bit of writing and rereading bits of books in my collection that I've already read in the past. And it was quite transformative, and I did come out of it having learned a few things and reflected on a few things. It's one of those things where you wouldn't wish it on anyone. You know, the same as if you had a a really serious illness, and in fact, that is a part of the book that I'm going to read. I'm sure it's going to be in part two, at least. A lady who um, had cancer, and she discovered through that some amazing things an amazing attitude and a perspective that she wishes she'd had before she had the cancer. And this and this has become a bit of a cliche, but it's valid, you know, the regrets of the dying and things like that. People who know they're about to die and they suddenly think, oh, why didn't I do that? Why did I think too much? Why did I attach too much importance to work? So what I would say is that I'm not wishing illness on anyone, but illness of some kind is going to come to you, hopefully not seriously, but some kind of illness comes to most people at some time and I would say you know try and use it to your advantage 
you know, it's not that you want to be ill, but if you are ill and there's nothing you can do about it apart from try and speed up the recovery process, then you may as well use it to your advantage. So that's my, um, that's what I wanted to say really from that. Okay, the other thing I wanted to say is that uh, I am a life coach and if you are interested in life coaching or you know anyone who's interested, please contact me, lifeandlifeonlypod at gmail.com. If you're new to the show, I've got a bit of a back catalogue there to go back to. And in fact, I went through, if you listen to the previous episode, I went through the back catalogue, just title by title and just commenting briefly on each one. But this is a podcast that looks for inner and outer truth. I'm kind of looking at both here, really, but I suppose this is more the inner truth strand because this is more about your perspective on things, the way you look out at the world. If you're interested in helping out the show, there's a link in the show notes, buy me a coffee, which is where you can buy me a, not an actual coffee, but the price of a coffee or two. There's also a PayPal link if you want to help out. It's really for my work over my three podcasts, because if you don't know, as I mentioned, I've got one called Glass Onion on John Lennon, and I've also got one called Film Gold, which is obviously about films. Okay, let's get cracking on this. Take a deep breath, everyone including me, because I've fallen into the same trap. I've dug myself the same podcast hole, but it's a pleasant podcast hole. Yesterday, I sat down with this book, which, like I said, I finished reading it about two weeks ago, sat down with it, tried to pick out good bits, and then just thought I could easily read the whole thing. But I don't want to do an audio book as such. I want to stick to the format because it's worked quite well and good stuff comes in the moment. So our topic is happiness. And what I thought I would do is read you some quotes that I found about happiness. These are from the Goodreads website. This is a a website about books. So Ralph Waldo Emerson, for every minute you're angry, you lose 60 seconds of happiness. Anger is something that's tackled in the the Darren Brown book. You know, at the time Emerson was writing that, this wouldn't have been such a well-known quote. You know, it's it's easy for anything in 2023 to be labelled as a cliche just because it's been said so much, but that doesn't mean it's not valid. We will talk later on about anger and how it's... It can be useful, but a lot of the time it doesn't really serve a purpose. Love is that condition in which the happiness of another person is essential to your own. A gentleman in my meetup group, I think I have mentioned once on this podcast, he said love is that what you want for yourself is what I want for you. So saying something quite similar... Abraham Lincoln, folks are usually about as happy as they make their minds up to be. One of the tensions, if you like, in the field of happiness, the study of happiness, which uh, is tackled in the book, is about how much do we let fate decide and how much do we actively make our own luck and make our own happiness. Time you enjoy wasting is not wasted time. Martha Trolloy Curtin. Don't know who that is, but it's a good quote. Yes, this is something I I massively struggle with when I have free time because I never seem to have enough free time that I'm not in that phase of winding down, which is not very pleasant. I don't know if I've ever talked about this on the podcast before, but when I have a period where I'm doing a lot and then I have, say, a weekend off, I always think I'm going to wake up on the Saturday morning going, great, I've finally got some time off. Same as when you go on holiday. I mean, I don't think my life is particularly stressful, but let's take a person who works ridiculous hours in quite a high-powered job and has a very stressful life. When they go on holiday, they'll probably spend, let's say they're having 10 days holiday, they'll probably spend three or four days winding down. It feels like a bit of a withdrawal. 
It's almost like, you know, if you're giving up alcohol or hard drugs or something, you have to go through the withdrawal period. It's not really that pleasant. And uh, I think it's an art form to enjoy your free time. Time you enjoy wasting is not wasted time. Wasting there in the sense of not using it for something that you have to do. You know, doing nothing, in inverted commas, which often means enjoying time, because time doing nothing is often very productive, in fact, because it puts your mind in a slightly different space. It's so hard to forget pain, but it's even harder to remember sweetness. We have no scar to show for happiness. We learn so little from peace. That's fantastic. Chuck Palahniuk. Don't know how to pronounce it. He's the writer of Fight Club. Happiness in intelligent people is the rarest thing I know. That's Ernest Hemingway. So perhaps that's saying that intelligent people, let's say intellectuals, they're not happy because they just overthink everything. And I think there could be something in that. Albert Camus, you will never be happy if you continue to search for what happiness consists of. You will never live if you're looking for the meaning of life. So that's basically the idea of chasing. It varies from person to person. I find if I chase something, I very rarely get it. And what I should do, really, is open the space for the good stuff to come in. Finally, we'll give uh, Gandhi the final word. Happiness is when what you think, what you say, and what you do are in harmony. And Darren definitely tackled this as well. It's when you've got everything balanced. But Darren looked at it, I think, more to do with what you already have and what you desire. That's something we'll get onto. When you're chasing something rather than actually facing the reality of who you are not that you can't improve but personalities don't change as much as we would like obviously there are cases where someone has had an incredible change if there's any boxing fans listening think of george foreman the young george foreman was a killer not literally but he did actually say he wanted to kill the people he was going into the ring with he was um boxing champion in the 70s around the the time of Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier. Have you ever heard of the rumble in the jungle? That was Foreman and Ali when they fought in uh, Kinshasa in Zaire. He retired in 1977, became a preacher, and then came back 10 years later for a comeback, but emerged in the 90s as this incredibly genial, fun-loving guy. He became, you know, Uncle George, where he'd been this real brute in the 70s. So people can change but there's a nice thing where you, you are comfortable with what you are, you know, with improvements to be made, yes, but fundamentally what you are. And just to repeat that, yes, happiness is when what you think, what you say and what you do are in harmony. So you're not trying to bluff and you're not trying to hide and you're not trying to believe that you're something that you're not. Self-knowledge is a, a wonderful thing and that really is a big key to happiness. And on that happy note, I've already done 21 minutes and I haven't even started the book. I wanted to comment on the subtitle. As I said, the book is happy, subtitle, why more or less everything is absolutely fine. Now, when I was reading this, I was thinking, who is Darren's audience? Who would this book apply to? Okay, so I am a person, I'm English. My upbringing was, I would say, lower middle class. And then we moved, when I was about nine years old, we moved to another place and we became more I don't know, solidly middle class, middle middle class, if you like. And I was never that comfortable with it. So lower middle class seems to be my natural social standing. But to say that more or less everything is absolutely fine, he is really speaking to people who have a reasonably comfortable life. So 
Western middle class, some would say white, having all the advantages in life. So it's this idea that me personally, I've had quite a few internal struggles in my life. The trauma in my life has come really from myself and the massive hang-ups I used to have in my 20s, which haven't totally gone away, but they've got a lot better. But I also know fundamentally that I have an, an easy life compared to the vast majority, depending on what you call the vast majority. Now, I don't remember the, the latest stats, but it's well over half of the population is living on a very small amount of money per day, $5 a day, $10 a day, maybe less than that. So, um, you know, I think someone on the poverty line, I don't know whether they would be reading this book anyway, but if they're reading this book, they'd say, well, no, not everything is absolutely fine. But I see where Darren's coming from, and I would say he's general demographic and when I say middle class I'm not saying that working class people can't enjoy this book obviously not but if you have reasonable skills and a reasonable job it's important to realize how lucky you are and there's that line isn't there you don't need to do the lottery because you've already won it the lottery of life so I think that's what the subtitle is about just in case people are thinking oh yeah it's easy for you to say everything's fine Mr. Darren Brown rich and famous that's another thing he gets on to <laughs> about how money and fame affects happiness I think he's also tapping into the fact that so many of our problems are in our head. And I think I read in one of Robert Greene's books a theory that wasn't Robert's theory, but he was passing it on. The idea that because for most of our existence as humans, you know, we were out in the wild and we were in genuine danger from saber-toothed tigers and other tribes. So we were really, say we, I wasn't there, but uh, humans were in genuine danger and... The theory goes that since we've become civilised, modern life, which is a very, very small proportion of the time that we've been on Earth, because we don't have those troubles anymore, we almost invent them. I have a relationship with what I call my higher self. This is going to sound really weird, but hey, you know, if you followed my podcast, you'll know I'm pretty weird already. I have conversations with my higher self. It's something that came out of the uh, book The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. We have a higher self and an inner critic. And the inner critic is all those voices from your past, from uh, school and everything, and or parents it could be, that are telling you, you know, just get a normal job. You don't want to be a writer or a musician or a film star. It rubs off on you, so you tend to criticise and you tend to debunk a lot of your ideas. Then you've got your higher self. Now try and imagine yourself, the person that you already are, but with no pressure, no need to make money, no need to please people, no need to maintain relationships. And that doesn't mean that, you know, you're living on your own. This is a higher self. This is a concept. You're still you. But imagine if if you had a voice in your head that was you with no pressure. Imagine how wise you could be without the pressure to get up in the morning and, and have obligations and things like that. For the majority of people, it is a bit of a struggle to get up in the morning. Imagine if you didn't have all that and you had this voice... And I connected with that. When I go for a walk or when I'm lying in bed, particularly, you know, first thing in the morning or last thing at night, I have a conversation with this person that's the wisest version of me. And it really, really gets results. I would recommend it. You know, that doesn't mean that you're, you know, you're walking in a busy street, just talking to yourself. But if you go for walks in a park or somewhere quite quiet, just consider having a dialogue with just that best version of you the you that is not degraded by all the pressures of life.
Right. I'll be ready, folks. There's an intro uh, quote here. This is another name that I can't pronounce. Reina Maria Reicher. The book Letters to a Young Poet. Things are not all as graspable and sayable as on the whole we are led to believe. Most events are unsayable, occur in a space that no word has ever penetrated. Now on the John Lennon podcast, I had a good friend on there that I have a very good chemistry with. And I remember at one point we were talking about how a Beatles story that we'd always believed was now apparently not true, like the event hadn't happened. And we concluded that we were very comfortable with the fact that we didn't know anything really about the Beatles. That happens to be our area of interest, or the one we were talking about then. And I think the same about the world. Now, I don't mean that literally, I don't know anything, but what I mean is we don't really know what goes on, or we know a fraction of it, let's say. And I think that's a really good perspective on life. I said that this book didn't overlap with The Art of Happiness, but the Dalai Lama, if you remember, regular listeners, if you remember back then, he laughed at the idea that he could explain people's behaviour. And like I said, at the time, he spends you know, large proportions of his day in meditation and contemplation, let's call it. So if the Dalai Lama thinks that you can't explain human behaviour, then take the pressure off. Don't expect to be able to explain people's actions, even people that you know pretty well. So um, most events are unsayable, occur in a space that no word has ever penetrated. So there is a huge mystery element to life. And although it's nice to control it and to feel you're in control, really you're not. You know, you can control certain things, and we'll get on to that when we talk about the Stoics and Marcus Aurelius. The book is divided into three broad sections, beginnings, solutions, and happy endings. There's a lot of chapters, and what I've endeavoured to do, I've chosen about half of the things to read, and we'll see how long that goes today, because I'm going to record it in uh, basically half now and half on another day. I've tried to pick from each bit, but... uh, As ever, I want to just see where this goes. As I said, leave a space for the magic to happen. So right at the beginning of the book, he writes, We are, each of us, a product of the stories we tell ourselves. Some of our stories are brief and inconsequential, allowing us to get through our day and make sense of other people. Quote, I'll do this and head to the shops and get that done and then I'll be able to completely relax this evening. Or, she was snappy because really she's worried that I'm putting other people before her. She does that because she's insecure. These are neat narratives that allow us to arrange complicated reality into a satisfying and tidy parcel and move on with our lives. Without them in place, we would only see a mess of details. If we were unable to form meaningful patterns, our lives would become overwhelmed. Other stories become deeply ingrained and in many ways define who we are. We tell ourselves tales about the future. Oh, I'm an awkward misfit who looks terrible and always will. Or, I'll never have a fulfilling relationship. Other stories are about the past. Quote, I'm like this because my parents treated me in a particular way. Or, I'm an unlucky person, always have been. Yet our entire past, which we feel in many ways correctly is responsible for how we behave today, is itself just a story we are telling ourselves in the here and now. He expands on that, but I'm, I'm going to try and keep the quotes from the book brief because there's so much. But yes, uh, I'm sure I've talked about this before as well. And this has become such a massive thing in my life when I think about it. The narratives we tell ourselves, the stories we tell ourselves, the leaps we make. When something happens, we think, oh, that person thought that because of that. That means that that's the way they think about me. And that means that I'm this and I'm giving off these vibes. And it just goes on and on. So really, I'd say to all of you, 
all of you listening, just take a second and think about how many leaps. It's a creative thing, at least, but it's narratives. It's taking what happens in your life and then putting a lot of conjecture on it. Okay, moving on. Perhaps the first mark of emotional maturity is to realise that there is an enormous gulf between the events of the world and what we do with them. Out there and in here are two very different kingdoms, and other people are not accountable for how we feel. No one, however ludicrously they behave, has the right or the direct means to affect your self-control or dignity. No one need annoy us so much that we in turn become a source of annoyance to others. In fact, the Stoics have some powerful advice about how to appreciate and maintain a distinction between the outer and inner worlds, and therefore how to reduce our levels of anxiety. When we grasp that we do not need to react unhappily to events in the way to which we are accustomed, and thus begin to question our relationship with those aspects of the outer world, we can apply the same understanding more deeply to our inner world and the story we tell ourselves every day about who we are. That can change too. It is, after all, a fiction. And then he quotes a person called David McRaney, a book, You're Not So Smart. When a movie begins with the words based on a true story, what crosses your mind? Do you assume every line of dialogue, every bit of clothing and song in the background is the same as it was in the true event on which the film was based? Of course you don't. You know movies like Pearl Harbor or Aaron Brockovich take artistic license with facts, shaping them so a coherent story will unfold with a beginning, middle and end. And he talks about that's basically what we're doing. We're taking true events and then we're shaping them, we're giving them a narrative. We are trapped inside our own heads. Our beliefs and understandings about the world are limited by that perspective. Schopenhauer wrote, Every man takes the limits of his own field of vision for the limits of the world. Of course then we mistake that story we've constructed of our lives as the truth. Then he talks about the fact that we have blind spots. That's an interesting concept. The idea that all of us... I'd say every person who's ever existed in this world, even the Dalai Lama, has a blind spot, which is behaviour that they do that they can't see, that everyone else can see. And it's a bit of a scary thought to think about, but I think it's a true thing. When people don't understand you, is that because you're doing something that they rightly don't understand, but you just don't realise you're doing it? Worth a thought, but don't get too uh, upset by that. Now, in the chapter that's called The Problem with Being Positive, he absolutely savages... Rhonda Burns, The Secret. And I'm very happy with him savaging that. I didn't read the book, but I watched the documentary. That really angered me. While also perversely making me laugh at the same time. There's a bit... I don't remember if I remember this rightly, but maybe it's just a narrative I came up with. But one of the big criticisms is, number one, you don't see all the people that the law of attraction didn't work for. And also their idea of success in life seems to be almost completely material. And there's a bit... The bit I remember was, it's an American guy saying, hey, you can have this life. Look at my wife. And it was this trophy wife. I'm sure it was a lovely lady, but it's the idea that that's the measure. It has to be a physically attractive wife and you have to live in a big house and that's the measure of success. There's also a section where he's talking about the Southern pastor, you know, the Southern uh, preacher. And um, Darren snuck in with a film crew to one of these, uh, I don't know, what do you call them, sermons? Probably call them more like events, where this pastor, it was in Dallas, was telling people, Jesus loves you. And basically what it comes down to at the end is Jesus wants you to give me money. Because they charge a lot for these. They're always dressed very natally. You know, they've got lots of jewellery and stuff. And they're doing very well out of this. And they're using the Lord to basically get money from their followers. 
and there's obviously a certain amount of brainwashing involved. The most disturbing aspect of the healing scam, aside from the fact that these top names provide no aftercare for the wake of unhealed and disturbed people they tell to throw away their pills and then leave behind, is that the blame for the ultimate inevitable failure of the healing is placed squarely on the shoulders of the victim. Clearly we cannot blame God or his appointed pastor when our symptoms return, so we are told to blame ourselves and our own lack of sufficient faith. If you did not receive healing or were blessed with it for only a short while before the cancer returned with full force, it is because you did not approach God or his pastor, P-A-S-T-O-R, in case you're wondering, with enough belief. For belief, we can confidently read money. That's the point I was making a minute ago. Perhaps you did not give more than you could afford when the buckets came round. That would have been a sign of true faith. Or perhaps you hung on to those pills when Dr. Jesus has shown you that you don't need them. Or perhaps you're just not a good enough Christian. Somewhere, somehow you're to blame. But by now the healer has moved on to the next city and if you try to contact his staff for assistance, they're not interested. I should have uh, clarified The Secret, which was a book and then a documentary by Rhonda Byrne. It's about the law of attraction. It's about how if you believe enough in the law of attraction, great things will just come to you. Darren, like I say, is very harsh on this, as I have been to other people, not on podcasts, just at the time when I watched the documentary, it angered me greatly. And in a sense, it's the same principle, because I think Darren alludes to the fact that in The Secret, they say, well, if you didn't, if it didn't come right for you, you didn't believe strongly enough in the law of attraction. So that's basically the same thing. It's blaming you because your faith wasn't strong enough. You know, not my fault. And he, he gives an example of, let's say, someone who uses the law of attraction to believe that they're going to own a coffee shop in a year and it works out. Joe Rogan, I remember, pointed out on his podcast years ago, as I said, you don't see all the people who didn't get the coffee shop. They just focus on the ones that did. And Darren says, what provided the coffee shop? Your focus and single-mindedness, your seeking of opportunities and a large amount of luck. The, quote, amazing coincidences that happened along the way only appear so because of the thinking traps into which you fall. Now keep that in your mind, folks, thinking traps. We're all doing it, constructing narratives, and a lot of it is traps. You've paid special attention to everything that has supported your belief in the law of attraction. You require a miraculous story to defend a magical system, and you've sought that out, that's all. The question is not, how do you explain that, but why am I paying attention to that? Because the system isn't magical, because there's no system. You shouldn't have faith in it. Otherwise, next time it will fail you and leave you crushed. Something worthwhile has happened, certainly, but understanding what has really happened will set you in better stead next time. Now, Darren, of course, does uh, tours now. I think that's his main thing, his main uh, job, let's say, that relate to faith healing. And he's showing you, he's both showing you that, in a sense, it works, but more in the placebo sense. And I'll find a clip. He was on the Joe Rogan podcast a couple of years ago, a few years ago. It's quite a long clip where he's talking about um, apparent faith healing. So he's quite down on it. He's quite down on religion. I think he was, uh, if not brought up in a religious household, then exposed to religion. So Darren will admit he comes with his own prejudices. I'm not saying everything in this book is uh, gospel, excuse the pun. But uh, I just think there's loads of interesting ideas. And what I'm really aiming to do with all of these things is just to plant lots of ideas in your heads. But I think the thing about narratives and thinking traps, I could tell you with certainty that you will be doing that unless you're the most enlightened person in the world. It's not a bad thing. It's if you address it, then you can make uh, improvements. Okay, let's move on a little bit. He then talks about goals and 
he's not mad on goal setting. Now, in uh, CBT and life coaching, which have a lot of overlap, there's a thing called SMART goals. Specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, and time-targeted. And I found that that's worked for me and for others. But then he's just looking at another angle. So he says, after talking about these SMART goals, what on earth is wrong with that? A lot, I would suggest. Firstly, we tend to grossly misunderstand what will make us happy. This book hopes to address the common misunderstandings and provide some more effective alternatives. From a starting point of ignorance and misinformation, we commonly choose the wrong goals, locked within our neat little stories of who we are and how we would like that story to continue. We aim for a point on the horizon that advances the narrative in the direction we see fit. For some, it is to be a millionaire by a certain age. For others, to be the biggest and best at their job. Very commonly, these goals are driven by a vision of financial success that we aim to realise within the next few years or by a certain age. At all levels, the drive to achieve the brightest kind of success is seen as the most natural and robust path to take in life. And of course, you know, we all get all kinds of messages through media and through other people. When you're young, there's not many kids at school who would say, well, I want to measure success by how enlightened I am or what peace of mind I have. You know, that's going to ostracise you very quickly from uh, the crowd, the herd, the majority. Darren says, I see no reason to decry financial success as long as we don't confuse it with happiness. I've mentioned already that once we earn over a comfortable amount, money does not make us happier. We might get richer, but we don't become more content. And later on, he he talks about fame, kind of reaches the same conclusion, although I've never been famous, apart from a very small window of fame on uh, the internet. I imagine that in the first few months when you become famous, it's all your dreams come true. You know, suddenly everyone is listening to you. All the people that wouldn't listen to your ideas suddenly do. But I'm pretty sure it would do your head in pretty quickly. Except maybe six months or a year. I don't know, depending on the person. But then you settle into it and you think of fame. I think he quotes Stephen Fry at some point saying it's more a byproduct of success in a particular field. So if you're very successful in insurance, that doesn't come with fame. If you're very successful with music or films, that almost certainly will. You know, obviously, if you're an actor, if you're a famous uh, cinematographer, you might have some fame, but not so much. Think of it more as a byproduct, and perhaps we could think of money in the same way. The point that he makes in this book is that when you achieve over a certain income, and let's say £100,000 a year, $150,000, whatever it is, when you are, quote, financially comfortable, particularly later in your life, when perhaps you've paid off your mortgage and you're free of that particular stranglehold, that is a nice thing, but it's not necessarily adding to your life. What it's doing is taking away something negative, which is worries about money, you know, money being an issue. Darren gives a personal testimony to that. I am no more or less happy than I was in my years in Bristol, post-university, claiming housing benefit in between very occasional magic gigs. We'll talk later about success and fame, but for now it is absolutely the case that for the vast majority of people, wealth does not significantly affect levels of happiness, despite how things might appear. The psychological reason for this can be expressed simply. Your happiness levels are largely defined by the balance of your personality. How happy you are, by default, is largely set. Now there is more to the story, of course, and the aim of this book is to explore some of the powerful transformative possibilities that are open to us, but money does not affect this core aspect of your character. If you are prone to unhappiness when poor, you are very likely to be prone to unhappiness when rich. 
The vital changes to our happiness do not come from outside circumstances, however appealing they may seem. Some external conditions, such as having an accessible network of friends, do statistically make a difference in levels to which people report being happy, yet it is not upon those trappings that we would choose to be dependent if we are to explore what would make us truly happy. I remember years ago listening to a podcast. I wish I could find it. I have tried, but I think perhaps the podcast finished the show itself, I mean. And it was looking at uh, lottery winners in various countries based on interviews. And it turned out that the people that were happiest after winning the lottery were people that already had some kind of settled life, were already reasonably happy with their life, and already had a reasonable income. The worst people to win the lottery would be people who are poor. Now, that might seem absurd. What would probably happen... Now, let's take... um, This won't mean much to people outside the British Isles, or maybe it will, I don't know, but if you've heard of the show, British sitcom Only Fools and Horses massively famous everyone in britain will have heard of this it's two brothers who are wheeler dealers basically market traders they suddenly um, they don't win the lottery but they discover a watch and this is a brilliant twist to it is a watch that they acquired around the time that the show started and it turns out to be a very rare watch that gets them i think it's six million pounds this is in the 90s so the genius of the show is that they actually have been millionaires the whole time without realizing it And um, what happens is that I think the writer wanted to finish the show at that point where they became millionaires and they walked off into the sunset. But there was pressure for the show to come back. They had to get a story. Rather than have the Trotters as rich, he worked in a story where they'd lost all their money on the futures market and they'd also blown it on travelling by Concorde, which existed at that time, and going to Barbados, you know, having exotic holidays. And I think even though that's a sitcom, it's not real life, I think he tapped into something very interesting, that if you had had money problems and if your life, in a way, was defined by living on the breadline and having money troubles, that would naturally be what you would do if you won the lottery or suddenly came into money like they did. You'd suddenly go, right, I can now go to Barbados. I can now fly first class or by private plane or whatever. And that would what happen. And so probably the people that would be happiest in the first six months after winning the lottery or let's say becoming famous and suddenly getting a million pound film or record contract they'd be the happiest to begin with but long term they would probably suffer the most i would say along with people who are already let's say emotionally unstable because they would then be looking for this thing be it money or fame or success in the eyes of the world they'd be looking for this to fulfill all their dreams that's my view of it so what darren is saying is that up to a certain level of finances or perhaps level of fame, we could say, although he comes on to that later in the book, you would be happy. But there's a point where your general default level of happiness is fairly set. As he made the point, as I made the point earlier, that can change and that can change profoundly. But it's certainly not going to come from winning the lottery. You're not going to become, you're not going to go from being an emotionally unstable and maybe quite poor person to suddenly being rich and emotionally stable because of that external event. That's the point. Now, there's a little illustration of an X and Y axis. We all remember those from school, don't we? Mathematics classes. And this comes from uh, Schopenhauer. Basically, it's a diagonal line, and the Y axis is the vertical. God, I'm now tripping myself back to mathematics class. My teacher will kill me if they know that. If they're listening to this, (laughs) I don't even remember their name, but... 
my maths teacher. Yeah, the y-axis is the vertical, the x is the horizontal. It's a diagonal line. The y-axis is aims and the x-axis is fortune. Fortune in the sense meaning luck, what the external world gives to you. The diagonal line is saying really that um, it's equal, isn't it really? Aims and fortune. So you have your aims and you make a certain effort and then the universe gives you this and gives you that. Later we'll talk about fate and how dangerous it is to put everything in the universe's hands. In a sense, you've got to work within the universe. And he says, we do not have the control over events that we'd like to imagine would allow us to succeed through self-belief. In truth, we aim in one direction, events pull us in the other, and the line of our life is drawn along the middle. Now, I used to be a fairly enthusiastic chess player. I was going to say fairly serious chess player, but really I wasn't because I... I always thought if I want to get into chess, it really needs to be my main thing, not one of you know six or seven things that are competing for my interests. But I've always found the game fascinating, you know, from afar in recent years. Darren quotes Schopenhauer. This is uh, Arthur Schopenhauer, who's a German uh, philosopher. Schopenhauer also uses the game of chess to give us another image of how our goal setting might be unrealistic. When playing chess, we start out with a plan, but our plan is affected by the inclinations of the other player. Our plan must modify itself constantly to the point that, as we carry it out, several of its fundamental features are unrecognisable. To stick blindly to the same goals would be to deny that a second independent player was at the board. We're told to live our lives by focusing on the future and by believing in ourselves at all costs. The result too often is waste and frustration. By projecting ourselves always into the hereafter, we miss out on the present, on knowing ourselves and the richness of the current moment. By trying to control what we can't, we all but guarantee frustration and disappointment. Is this the life we wish to lead? This book really is gold. I mean, I really want you to read it rather than using these podcasts as a shortcut. I know it's tempting and I've done it myself. But this book pulls off something that's a a neat uh, trick, if you like, of being very profound, but also very easy to read. And there's nothing in this book which is too complicated. It's just complicated enough to make you think. And I I did reread a few paragraphs of it after I'd read them just to really nail what he was saying. But there's so much wisdom in this and uh, a very good writing style from Darren. So I love that analogy of chess. It's fantastic. You have your own chess moves. You probably know, depending on your level, 10, 20, some people probably know 50 openings, and then you modify it. So that's the way to live, I think. Have a plan, go out, but be flexible. And, you know, I I have this in my teaching, in my life coaching, in my podcasting even. You know, I I write myself prompts, as I'm doing here. But I don't know what's going to come out. When I read these bits from this book, let's say in the teaching I make a plan and then I modify my expectations, perhaps. You know, I mean, I I had the ridiculous expectation and I I can laugh at myself. I'll do an hour's podcast reading from this book. And here we're nearly an hour in and I'm reading from page 57 out of 500. (laughs) But what's the answer? Don't fight that, Anthony. Don't fight it, mate. Just um, go with it. You're enjoying it. Hopefully you listeners are enjoying this. So uh, go with the flow. I've got a plan, but I'm ready to modify it or throw it out the window, if need be. Now, Darren quotes William B. Irvin, who wrote a book called On Desire, Why We Want What We Want. And he writes, in On Desire, Professor Irvin offers the following thought experiment. Suppose you woke up one morning to discover that you were the last person on Earth. 
During the night, aliens had spirited away everyone but you. Suppose that, despite the absence of other people, the world's buildings, houses, stores and roads remained as they had been the night before. Cars were where their now-vanished owners had parked them, and gas for these cars was plentiful at now-unattended gas stations. The electricity still worked. It would be a world like this world, except that everyone but you was gone. You would, of course, be very lonely, but let's ignore the emotional aspects of being the last person and instead focus our attention on the material aspects. In the situation described, you could satisfy many material desires that you can't satisfy in our actual world. You could have the car of your dreams. You could even have a showroom full of expensive cars. You could have the house of your dreams or live in a palace. You could wear very expensive clothes. You could acquire not just a big diamond ring, but the hope diamond itself. The interesting question is this. Without people around, would you still want these things? Would the material desires you harboured when the world was full of people still be present in you if other people vanished? Probably not. Without anyone else to impress, why own an expensive car, a palace, fancy clothes or jewellery? Irving continues to suggest that, alone in this imagined world, you might try these luxuries for a while, but would soon, for example, find a dwelling that was easy to maintain rather than live in a palace, obtain clothes that were comfortable rather than expensive, and would probably lose all interest in your appearance. The thought experiment shows that we choose our lifestyles, our houses, our clothes, our watches, with other people in mind. One way or another, we project a style designed to make others admire or envy us. That style may not, of course, be about what's strictly fashionable. We all have some sort of image we like to project, and whether that image is trendy, tweedy, or just a mess there will be something we're identifying with and choosing to show the world. Very, very interesting. So let's take the diamond ring, for example. What you would find, if you were the only person on Earth, you'd wear the diamond ring if it was comfortable. Or perhaps for a while, let's take a watch. You probably wouldn't need to know what the time was. When I wear a watch, sometimes I look at my wrist and I say, I kind of like the way this watch feels. Okay, fine, but is it more comfortable to wear a diamond ring or a watch or not to wear it? I would argue that long-term, it's more comfortable not to wear it, so you'd have no reason to wear a diamond ring. In general, when I was reading this book, there weren't too many things that leapt out as saying, I'd never thought about that. There were things I'd thought of, but this book just collates everything so beautifully, and as I said, in simple enough language. But I'd never really thought about that. You know, I like to tell myself... I'm a person that doesn't care so much what people think, and I think that has happened with age. But, you know, social media has really highlighted that you have people, let's say famous people, because they have more followers, who are in their 50s and their 60s, that you always think of wise people, but you can see when they're virtue signalling, which means literally signalling to people, Twitter is a good example, through tweets to their hundreds of thousands of followers, that, you know, they did a good deed today and they want those people to know and they want to see those likes. And if you think about that, that is really pathetic. And I'm not judging because I've done it myself. I have 3,000 followers on Twitter for the Glass Onion, the John Lennon podcast. And I'll admit, you know, sometimes I might post on there because it feels good. You get you get the dopamine hit of uh, getting uh, likes, as in people press like. Maybe it's because they like it. Maybe it's because they feel like it's some duty. Who the hell knows? As I said, how do we know why people do what they do? I can sort of say I I haven't done that too much. I've questioned before, why am I doing this podcast? Is it because I want loads of credit? Not really, because I don't get that many messages. I get nice messages from people. Obviously get more for the John Lennon one because it's more high profile because of the subject. 
But it's interesting to think about that, why you do what you do, how much of it is to impress people. I mean, it would do my head in to live in a palace. You know, if I was the one who had to clean it, okay, if rich people who live in palaces generally are not cleaning them themselves. I think we can be fairly sure about that. But I don't know, why live in a palace? Why live in a house that's got 50 rooms? Now, let's take the John Lennon example, someone I know a reasonable amount about. He bought a big house, partly because it was the dream, but partly because he couldn't live on a normal street. Because at that time, the Beatlemania era, he would have got torn to shreds by well-meaning fans who'd be screaming at him and trying to tear off his clothes, etc. So he had some reason for buying that, but he realised that he got 40, 50 rooms. He lives in, in one. He used to live, uh, apparently, like a student. He'd live in one quite small room, and him and Yoko used to curl up on a sofa that wasn't even big enough for one of them, really. He'd curl up with a good book. That was John Lennon's happy time. Yeah, not that he wasn't happy with his family to some extent, but it was interesting. And in a famous interview that yielded the bigger than Jesus quote, one of the other telling quotes is um, the journalist Maureen Cleave saying his possessions have got the better of him. And those possessions could include just the rooms of the house as well as the objects, the trinkets that he decided he wanted to buy, all these random objects. So, um, if you did have the freedom to live anywhere you wanted, but there was no one else around, I'm pretty sure most people would live in a manageable house. <laughs> Probably with a big garden. I think, think if I was famous, if I was rich and famous, I'd want a house with a fairly sizable garden because it would be almost like having a little bit of a park. Don't know if I'd need the 81 acres, 71, 81, something like that, acres that John Lennon had in his house or George Harrison had at his house. But anyway, really interesting thought experiment there. Now, from Desire we get to envy and he gets to a very important point a very interesting point now if we think of celebrities he takes the example of uh, madonna okay some people like madonna some people hate madonna obviously they don't know her as a person but they don't like the image of that person that ultra rich famous person who's been rich and famous for 40 years now i guess but it's interesting that we are fed he mentions the forbes celebrity rich list and we are taught from a young age, our culture teaches us to worship celebrities and to look up to them, to people who've got more money than us. And if you turn on your TV and watch a few adverts or chat shows as well, it's all about worship of celebrities. And it's interesting. I have this part-time job that I've started outside of all my teaching, podcasting, life coaching. And I drive to work and I stick on uh, the breakfast show of a commercial radio station because I do quite like the energy of it. You know, it does... It works perfectly with driving. I'm not looking for anything profound. But I've noticed within a couple of minutes of turning on the radio, it's all about, oh, I met this person the other day. I met whoever it is. The extreme examples would be Tom Cruise, and they go, oh, my God, you know, as if they are gods. And we're just constantly being given these messages that these people are gods, despite all the evidence to the contrary. And he makes a point here. Most people would not begrudge Madonna her placement at the top of the Forbes Celebrity Rich list for 2013, brackets though her peers well might, but they may seethe quietly at a colleague's pay rise or a friend's new house. This insidious envy that fuels so many of our desires is not then a product of the differences exist between the strata of rich and poor. Instead, it is born from comparisons we make within our particular level of prosperity or success. 
where everyone is living in more or less equal comfort. Sociologists refer to reference group theory, the idea that in forming our self-identity, we compare ourselves to those in our peer group. Our cognitions, perceptions, attitudes and conceptions of ourselves are all tied in with those to whom we liken or contrast ourselves. When we were reviewing The Corporation, Luke and myself, we talked about uh, Jeff Bezos, who'd recently gone into space. And if you take really the people at the at the moment, Bezos, Bill Gates, Elon Musk, they're the people that are always in our faces and always in the media. And again, we're taught to look up to these people, especially Bill Gates with all the vaccine um, things. I mean, if you look at how much money he's made from that and the absurdity of how he's suddenly a virologist... We're supposed to just blindly swallow what he tells us about vaccines. It's pretty crazy. But we were talking about, you know, people can ignore the fact that, according to a lady who was at Davos at the World Economic Forum, there are Amazon factories in the USA where people have to wear diapers, the workers, basically because they're not allowed to stop to go to the toilet to take a dump. And, you know, the fact that we can forget that and we could just think about the service that that company provides, which is admittedly a good service, but it comes at a cost there's a reason why they give refunds so easily but anyway um don't think that rich people or famous people or rich and famous people <laughs> they generally go together have the secrets and that they are people to necessarily look up to they may have some wisdom of course but that depends on the person and of course i've got a big marketing pr team who might feed them lines of great wisdom so that it can help them look like that that's the game folks with all these people who live in the elite circles of society, I, again, I haven't been there myself, but I know enough, I've read enough, that uh, it's all controlled, just as the mass media is controlled. But that's interesting. Yeah, We tend to compare ourselves with the people in our immediate circles. Keeping up with the Joneses, we're keeping an eye on what our neighbour is doing. And some would say that's human nature. I've always had a problem with the phrase human nature because, uh, to me, it, you can't distinguish human nature from human conditioning in certain cases. Yes, we have a, a natural need to procreate and perhaps we are naturally social, but things like envy and desiring things that other people have got or that we will never realistically have, that doesn't seem like human nature to me. That seems like very, very clever advertising and marketing messages. Now we're back to Schopenhauer again, and this is talking about needs, which obviously has a relationship with desires, but they're not quite the same thing. Schopenhauer draws from another great ancient Greek philosopher who concerned himself with happiness, Epicurus, not to be confused with the Stoic Epictetus, who gets mentioned a lot in um, this book. Epicurus saw human needs as divisible into three categories. So this is Derren Brown quoting Schopenhauer, quoting Epicurus. Schopenhauer clarifies Epicurus's classifications. Number one, natural and necessary needs, which cause pain if not satisfied, essentially food and clothing, which are easy to satisfy. I put shelter in that as well. They often talk about food, warmth and shelter. Two, natural but unnecessary needs, such as sexual satisfaction, which are more difficult to satisfy. Now, you could argue, of course, that procreation is necessary to keep the human race going, but uh, perhaps sexual desire let's say just um sex which is not to procreate could be considered an unnecessary need i guess people would argue that wouldn't they number three neither natural nor necessary needs such as the latest gadget other luxuries and personal fame which are without end and difficult to satisfy and that third category is really what i was talking about that's where advertising and marketing and all the messages that hammer into us from before we have um, the maturity to 
look around the world and try and form our own identities. You know, whatever age that is, we've talked about this before, maybe with very precocious kids, could be five, six years old, that they start forming their own opinions about the world. I'd argue for most people it's probably more like, I don't know, 10, 11 years old. There's so many messages that have already been hammered into your head by then that if you want to be truly enlightened, there's a, a massive period of unlearning. And that came to me about the age of 32, 33. And fitting in with the life and life only concept of inner and outer truth, it tended to coincide with discovering certain truths about the world and the way it works externally. My journey was internal and external happening together. So carrying on, in other words, the more necessary a desired thing is, such as food and shelter, the more readily we'll usually find it is available and the more easily we'll be satisfied. On the other hand, the entirely superfluous things we desire, whether they be gadgets, fame or wealth, are much more difficult to secure and very rarely satisfy us. There is always more or better to be had. And he's got an interesting line here. Such unnecessary things, of course, constitute the vast majority of our desires. And once we realise that satisfaction is relative, we see that we may never achieve it as long as a notable disparity continues to exist between what we feel is worth attaining and what we actually possess. Unnecessary desires are without end because that disparity will always push us forwards to desiring more and therefore towards further dissatisfaction. And they are difficult to satisfy because they either come at a great cost or because of their never-ending and self-perpetuating nature. This is why people who live in simple circumstances often surprise us with how happy they are. It would be wrong, very wrong in fact, to say that people who live on the breadline of society who are struggling to get those essential needs, food, warmth and shelter, you know, it would be insulting to say, oh, look at those happy people. But I think they have done surveys and the people that seem to be happiest in the world are the people that have enough, people that have a good social life, they have a community, they have just enough to live, they have a simple life that isn't full of bureaucracy and red tape. They're the happy people, I'd say. And introducing lots and lots of gadgets to their life would be doing them a disservice because I think ignorance is bliss in that case. It's better not to know about all the gadgets that are out there because the advertising and marketing trick might just push you into wanting them. Part of my unlearning was about trying to keep my life simple. The only real things I own are a lot of books, admittedly, hundreds of them, CDs that I'm a bit nostalgic about, and I have some furniture, but not much else, really. I don't have a lot of material costs. I absolutely hate my smartphone, and I'm not trying to sound, you know, enlightened that I don't need my smartphone while you do. I like it for certain things, but they're really, really trivial things, like um, an app that helps tune my guitar. (laughs) Google Maps, I find useful. I find GPS in my car useful, but at the same time, when I'm planning a long journey, I map it out using a real map, and it's very important for me to try not to lose those skills. But yes, I got a smartphone originally because the school I was working for and indeed the, the online school I do English teaching for now, they send out emails saying we've got a new student, bloody blah, blah, and the first, it's first come, first served in terms of the teachers. So if I, don't, if I don't pick up those emails, I won't have any work. But I can safely say that I'm distancing myself more and more from my smartphone. So yeah, very good points there again. He's saying these unnecessary desires are difficult to satisfy. That's another marketing and advertising trick. They put it just out of reach. They say, you can have this it'll make you happy and when you realize it doesn't make you happy they've got the next thing which will make you happy 
And it's the same trick over and over. But yes, I think limiting your desires, keeping your life simple, that is a big thing when it comes to happiness. And he also says, we commonly spend our lives focused on the future. Usually this carrot dangles before us in the form of a career ladder. It's easy to follow the carrot and harder to think about what might truly make us happy. We follow the former, not realising that we will never reach it to savour it, or that even if we do, we might find that particular carrot isn't even edible. Nice analogy there. Now, there is a very short video that's um, narrated by Alan Watts. He didn't make the video himself, but Alan Watts was uh, a philosopher from England who was very much responsible, one of the people that was responsible for bringing Eastern ideas, very general, I know, Buddhist ideas, to the West. And he based himself, I believe, in San Francisco around the 60s and probably became a bit of a rock star. Didn't present himself as uh, having great wisdom that other people didn't have. He had a very accessible style. And there's a video, uh, if I can find it, in fact, I'll play the audio right now. In music, one doesn't make the end of a composition the point of the composition. If that were so, the best conductors would be those who played faster. And there would be composers who wrote only finales. <laughs> People go to concert just to hear one crashing chord, because that's the end. <laughs> but we don't see that as something brought by our education into our everyday conduct. We've got a system of schooling which gives a completely different impression. It's all graded. And what we do is we put the child into the corridor of this grade system with a kind of, come on, kitty, kitty, kitty. And yeah, you go to kindergarten, you know. And that's a great thing because when you finish that, you'll get into first grade. And then come on, first grade leads to second grade and so on. And then you get out of grade school, you've got high school and it's revving up. The thing is coming. Then you're going to go to college. And by Jove, then you get into graduate school. And when you're through with graduate school, you go out to join the world. And then you get into some racket where you're selling insurance. And they've got that quota to make. And you're going to make that. And all the time, the thing is coming. It's coming. It's coming. That great thing, the, the success you're working for. Then when you wake up one day about 40 years old, you say, my God, I've arrived. <laughs> I'm there. And you don't feel very different from what you always felt. And there's a slight letdown because you feel there's a hoax. And there was a hoax. A dreadful hoax. They made you miss everything. We thought of life by analogy with a journey, with a pilgrimage, which had a serious purpose at the end. And the thing was to get to that end. Success or whatever it is, or maybe heaven after you're dead. But we missed the point the whole way along. It was a musical thing and you were supposed to sing or to dance while the music was being played. So really the message of that video is don't forget to dance to the music every now and again. Now I'm having to go forward. We get to part two of the book, which is Solutions. Perhaps I've convinced you that many of the things we are assured will bring us happiness are unlikely to, and that a key to achieving what this state might be is to harness the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. In this chapter we'll look at how we can start to own our own stories and feel a sense of authorship. That's something he comes back to. We do have a story. It's not worth denying that we make these narratives up. And it's better for us, really, that our life does seem to have a story. I think the point he's making is don't define it too much, because then it becomes more like a movie of your life. The story is changing, but we like to give our lives some kind of shape. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. 
Perhaps the biggest and most important step for becoming happier then is the first, realising we need a plan. Then we must find which plan stands up best to the realities of being alive. There is quite a marketplace of beliefs and philosophies to choose from, and it's hard to know which ones live up to their claims. It seems to be the case that many people who search for a consolidating philosophy tend to be eternal seekers, never quite comfortable in their own skin, and every few years adopting a fresh external source of guidance or following some new charismatic leader. We certainly don't want to become one of those lost unfortunates. I think Derrida's generally described what I was like in my 20s and what John Lennon was like as well. That's part of the identification I have with him. There's also a documentary that came out just a few years ago about Elvis Presley called Elvis Presley the Searcher. So if you think of searcher and seeker as basically the same things, I think that was one of his problems and John Lennon's problems and why they were both prone to isolation because they could never quite find this thing that they were looking for. And I, at a certain point, as part of my journey, realised there was an elusive thing that I was never going to find or achieve, but that there was nothing really wrong with that. And I don't really agree with Darren about goals being useless. I, I can't remember whether he actually said they were useless, but he obviously said he had a big problem with them. I think the manageable goals are a good thing to have. It's like with um, to-do lists. I'm wondering, uh, people listening to this, are you a person that is forever making lists? If you are, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but I've found make a list of manageable tasks. And if you find that the same thing keeps going on your list, it might mean that you're probably not going to get round to it. And you might want to think about whether it's important and whether if it was important, you probably would have done it by now. Not trying to stop people, you know, but... uh, If we take chess, in fact, a good example, we were talking about it a while ago. I had it on my to-do list to relearn chess, but that's not something that you can tick off, like doing the shopping or recording this podcast. I've had this on my to-do list for a few days, and I'm glad I finally got round to it. I was daunted by it, and I'm still daunted now, thinking about how much of this book I've still got to read, and that I'm nowhere near the schedule I had in mind. But yes, he's saying, yeah, make a plan. Perhaps don't make your plan too ambitious. Make it a manageable plan, a realistic plan. And um, realise that there, there will be the thing you, you are seeking, if you are a seeker and you pride yourself be, on being a seeker. And I think that was my problem, if you like. I prided myself. And maybe I still do. You know, I, I consider myself a truth seeker. And on my website, I've got truth seeker. And I am looking for truths about myself and the world. But I realise that I'm not going to get to the bottom of it. And I'm okay with that. So that was a big breakthrough as well. Now, going back to the idea of owning your own stories, one way of achieving this authorship would be through undertaking extensive and expensive psychoanalysis. Under the guidance of a professional, we would be led to understand our unconscious drives and engage more with our personal stories. Our dreams would be examined, the deep messages of our early years discussed and revealed, and our pathologies and anxieties reinterpreted as clear signals that specific parts of ourself are not being honoured. When we shut off something important within us, we are likely to experience it later as a psychological tension of one form or another. This kind of deep self-improvement is helpful and fascinating. It's neither cheap nor quick, although as Alain de Botton has pointed out, if we see it as a psychological equivalent of a gym membership, we might consider it worthwhile. Yes, I love that, the idea of your mind or your sense of improvement being a muscle. So just as you improve your biceps or your cardiovascular endurance, then you can improve your life bit by bit. So he's saying therapy is one thing. What he's describing there is more to do with Freudian psychotherapy. 
the best therapy I ever had was hypnotherapy. And it was for something specific. It wasn't to give up smoking, which is what people commonly uh, would use hypnotherapy for. It was to correct something that a deep trauma that I had inside. And I wouldn't say that it got completely resolved, but it helped a lot. And hypnotherapy is great because the therapist gets you in a hypnotic state. You're not in the state where Paul McKenna would get subjects into. When you see that on TV, that's very, very misleading. It's a state where you still know what's going on, but you just remove some of the filters that the mind imposes. The mind basically wants to defend your status quo, which you feel comfortable with, even if that's a highly traumatised status quo. That's why if we take an image of the battered wife or the woman who has been in an abusive relationship, when she gets out of it, she'll quite often go back into another one because that's the thing that she's comfortable with, even if it's a terrible thing, a very uncomfortable comfort zone, let's call it. So hypnotherapy I'd recommend because it cuts through the filters. Now we get to quite a long section on um, two selves. Now he talks about the experiencing self and the remembering self. So this is pretty simple. The experienced self is a person that is experiencing something in the moment and then the remembering self is the part that takes care of the memory of it. And anyone who studied memory or thought about memory will know how fallible it is eyewitness testimonies one person will say i definitely saw a red car you know if it's a crime scene for example another person will say no the car was green and they're both absolutely convinced and obviously one of them is right one of them is wrong but they're not making it up it's just that memory is fallible when we look back over our lives and decide if we have had a happy time in this world it's the remembering self that's making that judgment however it may be that some of those choices we made which satisfied the future remembering self were not at the time the most enjoyable experiences and therefore did not provide particular pleasure to the experiencing self for our purposes the separation of those two selves seems to correlate with what we might intuitively understand to be the separation of happiness and pleasure The former comes from a judgment we make, a sense of things being or having been right or as we would like them to be and tends to be retrospective, whereas the latter relates to what we are being made to directly feel right now. Thus, you might choose to spend an afternoon attending to a sick relative rather than going to a theme park with friends, choosing the least pleasurable option and leaving your experiencing self less fulfilled. But this choice might furnish your future remembering self with a better story of how you spent your afternoon and even contribute to a wider sense of happiness regarding what you do with your life. So this is a very important distinction between pleasure and happiness. And just to make a very general point, younger people, teenagers, they would tend towards pleasure more than happiness. And that's not a bad thing. Young people tend to live in the moment a bit more, although that's somewhat negated by the idea of being a teenager and having the troubles of the world, yeah, rather like uh, the main character in The Catcher in the Rye, for example. But young people do tend to chase pleasure. And as you get older, I guess you start to think of the long game. You start to think of happiness. And um, in my meetup group, we've done a couple of talks about happiness a long time before I read this book. I found some research which talked about different types of happiness. And I would say pleasure versus contentment two fairly opposite poles of happiness so i suppose playing the long game would be a good thing i mean think about times when uh, you choose to go to the gym for an hour rather than spending an hour not that you spend an hour eating junk food but you know what i mean 
hanging out at a pizza parlor or yeah, whatever it is. Although exercise is a nice thing and there are moments where you might feel pleasure, you know, the old endorphins start kicking in, that tends to take a bit of work. And I always find myself that going running or going to the gym, I find it hard work. And the pleasure really comes at the end when you've finished. It's the same with writing, in fact. I'm struggling terribly with finding the time and the energy to write the book I'm supposed to be writing about John Lennon. And even when I've found the time and energy, I've got all kinds of mechanisms in my head to find me things which are more pleasurable, such as watching stuff online, which might be educational or it might just be for fun, whichever it is. But I find with writing, the pleasure comes from having done it rather than doing it. But I think over time... It probably is true that we should focus more on the long game and the happiness while still remembering, of course, to have those pleasurable moments. Okay, going forward, we get back to this X and Y axis. And earlier we talked about the axis as being between aims and fortune. But uh, another one which I really like is the X and Y axis of challenges and skills. And there is mention here, perhaps inevitably, of the flow state. And the book, there's no way in a million years I can pronounce this gentleman's name. His first name is Mikael, who wrote Flow. Inevitably, this book and the flow state has come up in other Life and Life Only podcasts. Anyway, let's just call him Mike or Mikael. From his extensive discussions with people from all walks of life, he discovered there is a state of flow, a, quote, prime state that brings together the chess player, the surfer, the artist and others who can lose themselves in an activity and later testify that it is their happiest frame of mind. His graph is of skills along the x-axis, that's the horizontal, and challenges faced along the y. When an activity allows us to steer an x versus y diagonal, we find ourselves happily in this flow state, avoiding the tedium that arises when our skills outweigh the challenges we face, as well as the anxiety that follows when our obstacles become too great for us. We note the twin pitfalls of pain and boredom, the enemies of our happiness. Perhaps it was Schopenhauer's morose temperament that caused him to see the human experience as a battle between pain and boredom, but I think he can be misjudged. Most of his writing stands as a handbook for escaping the base and unpleasant forces in life and finding greater happiness. And it's more rewarding to read such advice from a philosopher whose initial presumptions about life are negative rather than try to digest the Pollyanna rhetoric of self-help writers who, for the reasons discussed in the first part of this book, insidiously induce anxiety by convincing us that love and hope should naturally and primordially infuse all areas of life with the aroma of fresh roses. To escape the cycle of pain and boredom, then, we need to take control of our stories. Ordinary men, Schopenhauer wrote, and of course ordinary women, are intent merely on how to spend that time. A man with any talent is interested in how to use his time. So lots of ideas there. I think Schopenhauer was known as a, quote, pessimist philosopher. And I think you'll find a lot of philosophers are, because when you look deeply at things, what you need to bring out in the open is the dark side of life, I think, in order to find the light. So Rhonda Byrne's secret and all these self-help writers the problem is self-help and i've made this distinction before between self-help and self-development the self-help is just too glossy and too simple and too quote positive it's what i call the sledgehammer of positivity it's like it's hitting you over the head with a sledgehammer you know a nice gentle soft sledgehammer not a hard sledgehammer but a soft one that's saying come on what's wrong with you you know you've read 200 pages of this book are you still not happy you don't have enough faith Whereas I think Schopenhauer, for example, he may have a morose temperament, but it's more realistic. 
I'm reminded of Woody Allen in, I think it's Annie Hall. I divide life into the terrible and the horrible. I may have got that wrong, but it's something like that. Obviously, you know, you have to temper his view of life, which he would admit is very negative in his real life as well. And I think there are dark forces that drive Woody Allen. I don't think, he, as we know, he's never, don't think, been found guilty of anything. But I think even beyond that, you can see that there is quite a large darkness that I think he's talked about that drives someone like Woody Allen. I think these philosophers are similar. I think the role that Darren Brown serves in writing this book is that he's a person who I'm sure has a dark side, but I think he's negotiated himself into a position where he is fairly happy and he knows the simple things which do make you happy. So I think there's always that tension between positive and negative, isn't there? Because the positive makes you feel good, but perhaps you do get closer to the truth by being somewhat negative in the sense of, I could say, acknowledging the dark side and getting to the, the nitty-gritty. Progress report, folks. I'm nowhere near <laughs> where I was hoping to get to, but I've got to finish this session fairly soon and start another one. Now, this is going back to the stories again. How do we set about engaging deeply with our stories? How, to use an architect metaphor, do we draw up the best plans? If our walls are severely cracked, no amount of wallpaper will solve the problem. We can jump in and start building with arbitrary enthusiasm, but without advice from the experts, we should expect to experience problems along the way. When we make these blueprints for our lives, we want to have the best advice before us so we can begin the adventure of building and enjoy the challenges we might face. We can cherry-pick from sometimes quite conflicting advice as long as we know that the different features will complement each other and work together in the final structure. Some people may be happy to hand over responsibility to a single architect and have him do all the work and decision-making. Religion offers this relinquishing of responsibility, and for many it's very appealing. Most complete solutions provide a framework that largely removes the need to continue asking the kind of existential questions that considered life provokes. The answers have been provided for you. No one system is perfect, and even if there were a perfect philosophy, who could perfectly apply it? As we explore philosophical answers, we will try to keep an open mind and tolerate contradiction, honouring the fact that life is always more complex than any one system will suppose. So I find these contradictions in my own life. I think everybody is a hypocrite or is forced into hypocrisy through the way the world works. I mean, that's externally, but even in our own lives. You know, it's a tricky business, this happiness thing and... Um, self-inquiry and I understand there's a lot of people that do basically want to be led whether that's by a religious leader or a politician or by a boss you know some people are very happy having a junior position where someone is telling them what to do and as long as they're being treated with enough respect which you should get the longer you stay at a company they're happy with that and that's fine I just think if you're listening to this podcast you're probably not that kind of person you're probably a person that is seeking to gain ownership of their life at this point i'm going to bring an end to this as i'm looking at this now this looks like it could be a three or four parter to be perfectly honest so we'll see how it shakes out as i said earlier need to go with the flow not control it the important thing is the content and i think already i've been recording for about an hour and 45 minutes it's going to be slightly less in the final version so however long you've been listening to this i hope you've enjoyed what you've heard so far and tune in for more. I am terrible at advertising and marketing. I just don't have that voice. I can't bring myself to say, hope you enjoyed the show. Tune in for more. I know that sounds awful, but I'm mocking it.
I'm mocking the idea of it and I'm mocking myself at the same time. Self-mockery, that's a great English trait, isn't it? Anyway, wherever you are in the world, I hope you've enjoyed listening to part one and I'll see you soon for more. So for now, all the best and goodbye. Goodbye.